You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Psalm chapter 3, a journey through the Psalms. Uh, I'll remind you that the Psalms are a collection of hymns that the Hebrews used in worship. So it's basically a hymn book. It's organized into five different sections, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. We started in book one. Book one goes through chapter 39 or 40, uh, and then we get to book two and, uh, and, and continue our journey. And so these psalms are rich, and there are some common themes we find throughout the book of Psalms. Even though there are 150 different hymns, there is really one major overarching theme, and I think Dr. Easley captures it well in his one-sentence summary of the Psalms. He writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. Life consists of mountaintops and valleys. And whether you're on the mountaintop or you're walking through a valley, God is worthy of your worship. And God is worthy of your trust and confidence. And that's what we see emerge from our study of Psalms. I like how John Piper says it. And this this quote kind of reminds us or points us to the reason that the Psalms are so popular among God's people. He writes, the Psalms are songs. They are poems. They are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. You know, God made us with emotions, right? God has emotions. The Bible speaks of God's emotions. And he made us in his image. So we have emotions. Now, our emotions have been marred by the fall. And they can get out of sorts and out of kilter. So we need to know how to handle our emotions in a godly way. And that's why the Psalms are so important. They, they teach us how to take whatever emotion we're dealing with. And if you name any emotion tonight, it's found in the Psalms. How to take any emotion we're dealing with and bring it to the Lord as an act of worship. He says, poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And by the way, I just love how God gave us his word, one, one book, one story of redemption, but he gave it to us in different genres. You know, we've been studying for over a year a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians in Ephesus during the first century. And a letter is a certain genre of literature. But he also gave us poems, right? He also gave us hymns, uh, wisdom literature, and, and other types of genres to help us to, to think of different facets of God's work among his people. And the, po- the, the Psalms are poetic in nature. And, and, and they connect with us at an emotional level. So we've made it to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3. Now a couple of preliminary thoughts, and then I want to walk you through some elements in understanding this psalm. First of all, uh, let's read it. Let's, let's do that first before I give some preliminary thoughts. Uh, psalm 3, notice the small letters there before verse 1. And, and just a reminder, and I'll say this a lot, 
The small letters there are inspired scripture. They are in the original text. Even though they don't have a verse 1 beside them, these are the words of God that give us understanding in particular psalms. So it says, a psalm of David. Now this is the first psalm that's called a psalm of David, even though we saw last week that Psalm 2 is actually one of the psalms of David. Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So we get some historical details, some historical context in which to understand these words. And we'll see that throughout the Psalms. Some of them give some very specific historical situations which are very helpful. And it says there in verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. We'll talk about Selah in just a moment. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. I love this phrase. My glory and the lifter of my head. God loves to lift our, lift our heads. We'll talk some more about that. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Now, just a kind of a quick thought before we jump into the different headings that I want to discuss this psalm under. This is the first psalm in which we encounter the word Selah. It's used three times in this psalm. It's used 71 times throughout the book of Psalms, so we'll see it a lot. And it's used three times in the book of Habakkuk. And the question becomes, what does this word mean? And here's the answer. It's going to be very unsatisfying for you, but the answer is this. We don't know for sure. It's an old Hebrew word. And we're going to come across some other words like Shigion and Shemineth, some other words that, the, that are probably musical terms, but the, the translators didn't know exactly what the word meant, so they, they just transliterated it into English. So we come across a word like Shemineth. What does that mean? And, and we kind of take some context clues to think, well, this is probably a musical or liturgical term. And it's the same with the word Selah, and, and people have studied this word, linguists have looked at this word and the roots of this word, and, and basically it could mean, it could be in really one of two categories. Uh, one meaning is it could mean to lift up, to lift up. It could mean something like lift up your hands. It could mean something like lift up your voice. It could mean something like sing louder. If this is a, a, a musical term, it's almost, if you music, musical folks will get this, it could almost mean something like change the key. You know when you're singing a song and the key changes and you go up a notch? That's all, as much I know about music right there. You kind of go up a notch. That's called a key change. This could be kind of a take it up a notch, right? That's, that's what this word um, could mean. It could be a signal for louder voices. It could be a symbol for you know, louder instruments, blowing the trumpets or something of that nature. The other, the other view of this word, and it could be this, based upon roots and ling linguistics and all of that, is it could mean something like pause for a moment of silence and meditation. It could be either one. So we don't know. We don't know which one it is. 
Um, but it's placed there for emphasis. When, when you see it, it's meant to either say, hey, this is a moment to take it up a notch, lift up your voice, lift up your hands, key change, or it may be a moment to say, let's pause and reflect on this and meditate on this. Um, we don't know which one that it is, but when you see it, it's probably a, a good place to, 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 to take a moment and say, okay, what was just said that would cause me to either lift up my voice and my hands or cause me to reflect on this passage. So it's, it's kind of an indicator that something significant is, 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 is to be considered. And so that's what this word means. And again, I know that's very unsatisfying. There are two different views. We don't know which one, but, uh, but it could mean one of those two things. But let's look at the four elements in understanding this psalm. Four elements in understanding this psalm. First of all, I want to talk about the context of the psalm. The context. And again, the context is given to us there in the small letters right before verse 1. Now, a lot of the Psalms, we don't have this kind of historical information, so we kind of have to guess or piece together what we know about, about uh, Jewish history. But here, uh, it is very clear, this is a Psalm of David written on the occasion of fleeing from his son Absalom. You can read about this over in 2 Samuel chapter 15, and I suggest that you read it. It's a very, very sad story. Basically, Absalom uh, sets himself up at the gate of the city, and when people come in with, with issues to be brought to the king, Absalom says, well, he's probably going to be too busy to handle that. Let me, let me, let me handle this for you. And, and Absalom begins to make judgments on behalf of uh, the, the king. And the Bible says over time he began to steal the hearts of the people where they began to follow him more than David. And then Absalom put together a little bit of rebellion. He got some of the, the officials from uh, David's cabinet. He, he got some religious leaders, some political leaders, and he gathered them together. And then he put in, in place a, a, a coup, basically, to overthrow his father David. When David heard that the, the treason had grown to that level, that Absalom had put all this together, that the coup was coming to, to fruition, David has to flee with his loyal followers, his loyal cabinet members. He has to flee Jerusalem, and he really has to flee for his life because Absalom wanted to kill him. Absalom wanted to be the king. Now, as you read the story, eventually, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but but the, 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 the context here is this. David's own son, Absalom, with an evil heart, had planned the overthrow of his own father. He wanted to, to overthrow the kingdom of David and have him killed. So you can imagine the, the emotions going through David's heart. We learn later on in the story that David greatly loved Absalom. And David is not only facing a coup, he's brokenhearted. It's, it's family dysfunction. And there's a lot of background with Absalom, but you know, there's, there's family dysfunction going on here. And, and David is leaving Jerusalem brokenhearted. And that is the context of this psalm. In fact, I think verse uh, 6 really sums up what he's experiencing, what he's feeling. Look what it says in verse 6 of Psalm 3. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So a lot of folks had joined Absalom's rebellion. He says thousands here. Uh, many had, had followed Absalom and were going to follow him to overthrow David's kingdom. So he feels surrounded. He feels surrounded by those who want his 
demise. And in the midst of that situation, uh, he writes what we know as Psalm chapter 3. So that's the context of the psalm, Absalom's rebellion. But secondly, I want you to see the complaint of David. The complaint of David. Look what it says there in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. And so here's what David's saying. It looks really bleak. Looks really bleak. Many are against me. And when they look at the circumstances, they say, David doesn't have a chance. This is a well-planned coup. Absalom has done all of the groundwork. He has maneuvered behind the scenes. He has a well-coordinated plan to overthrow the kingdom of his father. And so many are saying, David, has, he didn't have a, he didn't have a chance. There, there's no salvation for him. He called his God. There's no salvation for him. Absalom will have him killed. Absalom will sit on his throne. David's days are numbered. And so David here is, is registering his, his complaint before the Lord. I'm surrounded. It looks hopeless. But then the third heading is this. We see the confidence of David. We see the confidence of David. So in the midst of his, of his fear, of his angst about being surrounded by many foes, his own blood turning against him, he turns to the Lord. The confidence of David. Look what it says in verse 3. But, notice that word but. Many are my foes. They say I have no hope. They say my days are over. But, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. If you look there in your notes, David quickly takes his eyes. This is important. David quickly takes his eyes off of his circumstances and places them on God. He's looking around. Many are my foes. I'm surrounded. Thousands against me. But you, O oh Lord. He places his eyes on God. James Montgomery Boyce comments on this, this when he writes... When a believer gazes too long at his enemies, or I might add, too long at his troubling circumstances, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature, and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. So if you are going through a difficult time, if you are dealing with difficult circumstances, if all you do is look at the difficulty, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more and more overwhelming and you'll grow more and more and more hopeless. Why? You're putting all of your focus, all of your thought, all of your attention, you're, 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 you're placing all of your emotions on the line as you look at your circumstances. But when you look away from your circumstances and look to a sovereign God who is bigger than your circumstances, those circumstances begin to shrink. Your God gets bigger, your troubles get smaller but you've got to make an intentional decision like David did I'm surrounded by trouble but you O oh Lord 
He turns his eyes to the Lord. P.C. Craig, he says this, As the psalmist moves his eyes from the multitude of enemies to God, the tone of the psalm changes abruptly. If one gazes too long upon the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in the mind's eye to gigantic proportions, and his citadels reach up to the skies. The hypnotic power of the enemy is broken, though, when one turns one's gaze toward God, who is able to fight and grant Victory And so David quickly takes his eyes off of his circumstances, places them on God. We can learn a lot from David in that situation. But then David exhibits great confidence in the character of God. Great confidence in the character of God. And there are several truths here that David believes about God that he, that he shares. First of all, David believed that God is a protector. Look what the Bible says there in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a a shield about me. I'm surrounded by many foes, but God, you are my shield. You are my protector. And we need to understand that when we are going through difficult times or when we're on mountaintops and everything is going great, we need to be reminded that God is our protector. One of my favorite verses in the Bible from one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 91 is that those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High abide in the shadow of the Almighty. If you've taken your refuge in Christ, if you are saved, if you're born again, if you know God in a personal way, you are under the shadow of His wings. Here's what that means. And I'm going to say this, and I'll say it a lot through the study of Psalms, and it's so powerful, it sounds almost too good to be true, but it's biblical truth. You ready? Nothing can touch your life Unless God allows it. And if he allows it, he has a purpose behind it. He's going to somehow use it to build your character. And somehow it's going to turn out for your ultimate good, Romans 8.28. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. He's your protector. You know what Lottie Moon used to say? Single lady missionary on the other side of the world in China and very... Difficult conditions. Lottie Moon said, we give an offering to, in honor of her every year for Christmas uh, to, to support international missions. Lottie Moon said, I have a firm conviction that I'm immortal until my work on earth is done. I like that. I'm immortal until my work on earth is done. Nothing can touch me unless God allows it. And that's the, the, the belief that David had. God is a shield. The Lord is a shield around me, a protector. Even if I'm surrounded by thousands of people, they can't touch me unless God allows it. David also believed this. He believed that God would turn his disgrace to dignity. Look what it says in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. My glory and the lifter of my head. In other words, God, you're going, to, you're going to give me back that place of prominence and preeminence. You're going to give me back that, that uh, position that I had. I will find my glory in you as you lift me up. And he uses the phrase, the lifter of my head. Over in 2 Samuel 15, 30. We read the story about David leaving Jerusalem. It's a sad scene. His most loyal um, followers are with him. His household is with him. And he, he, he crosses the brook Kidron. He goes up the Mount of Olives. He's, uh, 
He's leaving Jerusalem, leaving the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, leaving his, his home, leaving his palace. And the Bible says that he was going and they were we- the people were weeping. You can almost imagine David with a bowed head, the weight of this circumstance. Family dysfunction, uh, trouble, trials, enemies. His life is on the line. The future is unknown. Why is this happening? You, you can imagine him bowed down under the weight of the situation. And yet he says, God, you're the one who lifts my head. You're the one that lifts my head back up. He's, he's speaking there of restoration. He's speaking there of renewal, restoration to dignity and position. That's what he's saying. God, I believe that you will restore me to my position. You will restore my dignity in this situation. He believed that God would basically, look at me, turn the tide of the situation. It looked really, really bleak, but he knew that God could turn things around. Charles Spurgeon wrote, there is a lifting of the head by elevation to office, as with Pharaoh's butler. This we trace to the divine appointment. There is a lifting up in honor after shame, in health after sickness, in gladness after sorrow, in restoration after a fall, in victory after a temporary defeat. In all these respects, the Lord is the lifter up of our head. If you feel weighed down, if you feel like you're under a a great burden and you can't even spiritually lift your head. God cares about you. He knows what you're going through. And He's bigger than whatever's weighing you down. And when you let Him have His way in your life and you come to Him with this need, He will not only help you, He will lift your head up. He'll take the, the, the despondency and replace it with joy. He will lift your head. Also, David believed that God answers prayer. Look in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. The holy hill speaks of the the place where the Ark of the Covenant was uh, in the tabernacle. This is the temporary structure uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was housed before Solomon built the permanent structure called the temple. It was on the, 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 the holy hill there in Zion, it represented the presence of God among his people. And he's saying, God, I cried aloud to you and you answered me. David believed in answered prayer. In fact, look what he says in verse 7. He asked some specific things here. Arise, O Lord, save me, uh, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. I, God, I'm asking you to do so. I'm asking you to come to fight on my behalf. I'm asking you to give me victory in this situation. God answers prayer. But then David believed, I'm in God's hands. We're going to talk about more about answer prayer on Sunday, so come back for that. We say, I'm in God's hands. Look in verse 5. I love this. David is running for his life. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. His own son has turned against him. Look what he says. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David is saying, I could lay down and sleep because I knew I was in God's hands. Isn't that powerful? 
I'm in God's hands. I can sleep even though I'm surrounded by trouble. And let me ask you a question. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that as a child of God, you're in His hands? You know, we used to sing the song growing up, one of the first songs we learned. We got, he's got the whole world in His hands. He's got you and me, brother, in His hands. You and me, sister, in His hands. Do you really believe you're in His hands? And think about those hands. They're, they're hands that shaped the creation. And they're hands that, that bear the scar of nails. Because Jesus loves you enough to die for you. And David's saying, I'm in God's hands. His powerful, loving hands. Therefore, I can lay down and sleep. And then David believed this. God is present with me. He's present with me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. This phrase, arise, O Lord, uh, harkens back to Numbers 10.35. It speaks of God, uh, the ark going up to go with his people. Uh, they would, they would, when God led them, they would take the ark and the people would follow behind it. And they would cry out, Arise, O God, lead, lead your people. And so this is a, a way of saying, God, you're with me. You're, just like the ark is present among your people, you are with me. And I'm asking you to arise and to save me. God is present with me. I love what Warren Wearsby says. He didn't have the ark of God, but he had the God of the ark. He had to leave the ark behind in Jerusalem, but he still had the God of the ark. Powerful, powerful stuff. And so here's what I want you to see in this, in this psalm. David is facing seemingly insurmountable odds. And yet, and yet, and yet, he has confidence, trust in God. Now, What's the conclusion of the matter? Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. What, what, what happens here? Well, 2 Samuel 18 tells us the rest of the story. Absalom's rebellion failed. God gave David some great wisdom and insight. David had some very loyal, faithful friends who protected him and watched over him through this entire episode. And eventually, those who were loyal to David overthrew those who were loyal to Absalom. Absalom lost his life. He died uh, in this fight for the kingdom. And David mourned greatly when Absalom died. In fact, he, he says, Absalom, oh Absalom! He's brokenhearted. He's despondent that he, that he lost his son. But God gives him the victory over his enemies. In fact, if you look there in your notes, God grants David a great victory over his enemies and restores him to his rightful throne. God was his shield. God was his glory. God was the lifter of his head. That, that's what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 18, the conclusion of the matter. So God answered his prayers and God came through. Now, let me give you just Three, uh, four. Four closing thoughts, and then we will transition to our time of prayer. First of all, this psalm has something to say about warfare. We're going to read a lot of Davidic psalms during this study of, uh, of the book of Psalms. 
And a lot of times when there's not a, a direct historical reference for context, you have to guess what David's talking about. Because so much of David's life was filled with conflict. I mean, think about all of his battles with the Philistines, starting with Goliath. And as, as he was the king, or before he became the king, he was on the run from Saul, who wanted to kill him. And Saul had his all, entire army looking for David. And then he fought against the Philistines many, many times during his uh, reign as king. And then he had to fight against Absalom and the rebellion and the coup. I mean, there's so, I mean, almost all of David's life, he's surrounded by warfare. Almost his entire life. And so a lot of times you're reading a psalm of David, you're like, what's he talking about here? Talking about Absalom? Is he talking about the Philistines? Is he talking about Saul? What's he talking about? But the point is this. David understood what it was to trust God in warfare. And this psalm has something to say for us along those lines. What have we been talking about for the past, I don't know, six weeks? Spiritual warfare, Right? Spiritual warfare, the reality of spiritual warfare. You are opposed. You have an unseen enemy. He wants to destroy you. Satan and his demons want to, want to absolutely uh, devastate your life. They hate you and your family and your church and your community and your nation and your world. They hate you and they want to destroy you. And it's real, so we need to be ready. We need to be vigilant and we need to be confident that our God is bigger. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. This psalm has something to say about warfare. Secondly, this psalm has something to say about mornings. M-O-R-N-I-N-G-S. Mornings. Look in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. So that, that is probably an indicator that David wrote this psalm, wrote these thoughts after a night of rest. And that's, that idea is further strengthened by the next psalm, Psalm 4 is a psalm about praying in the evening. And scholars believe that whoever collected the psalms and organized the psalms put those two together. Psalm 3 is a morning prayer of trust in God. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer of trust in God. And so that kind of speaks to the reality that prayer ought to be an ongoing part of our life. When you start the day, when you end the day, we ought to be thinking about talking to the Lord. And so this psalm has something to say about mornings. Spiritually speaking, David was a morning person. You see it in chapter 5, verse 3, chapter 57, 7 and 8, chapter 59, verse 16. Abraham arose early in the morning. Genesis 19, 27, 21, 14, and 22, 3. So did Moses. Exodus 24, 4, 34 and 4. Moses rose early in the morning. Joshua rose early in the morning to be with God. Joshua 3, 1. Joshua 6, 12. Joshua 7, 16. Joshua 8, uh, verse 10. Samuel, early in the morning. 1 Samuel 15, 12. Job, in the morning. Job 1, 5. And of course, Jesus Christ himself was known to get up early in the morning to have communion with his Father. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And so, we don't need to be legalistic about this. We don't need to you know, make up some rule that's not in the Bible. But, but there does seem to be an emphasis that it's good before your day starts, to get your focus on the Lord. Why is that? Well, because you need Him every day, right? The Lord is like manna. You need new manna every day. You need new blessings, new mercies every day. And the morning is before things get rolling when you get too busy to think about God, right? The morning's usually, generally, when things are a little bit quieter. 
a little bit more still and and uh, and, and I don't always do this well, but when I when I discipline myself and I do get up early or try to get before everybody else, it, it's good. It's quiet. The coffee tastes better. It's just it's just it's just it's just good to to spend time alone with the Lord in the morning. So. Again, that's just kind of, kind of a little insight from this psalm. We'll talk about evenings next week, but it's interesting here to see that David was a morning person. He woke up from a good night's rest in the midst of great trouble, and he calls out to God. Also, this psalm has something to say about salvation. There in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people, say law. Again, when you see the word salvation, you got to use context clues to know exactly what he's talking about because the word, Hebrew word translated salvation, means something like deliverance. Right? So sometimes it's talking about deliverance from enemies. Sometimes it's talking about deliverance from your sin. You know, the, the salvation we talk about being saved in Christ. Sometimes it's talking about, you know, deliverance from yourself. It, but, but the word salvation basically means deliverance. And, and here's the point. God's the one who does that. He's the one that delivers from sin. He's the one that delivers from Satan. He's the one that delivers from self. He's the one that delivers you from enemies. He's a deliverer. That's what God does. I mean, the entire book of the Bible is about God being a redeemer who delivers his people, right? And so I think here in verse 8, he's talking about deliverance from the threat of Absalom and his coup. But the reality is this. We need God for ultimate deliverance from sin and ongoing deliverance from the troubles in our life. James Montgomery Boyce says this, Salvation is of the Lord, but if that is true, listen to this, if God has saved you in this great matter of salvation, boy, this is good, why should you tremble before the lesser physical dangers of this life? However imposing and frightful they may seem, you should triumph by faith in God as David did. In other words, if you can trust God to deliver you for all of eternity, you can trust Him in the day-in, day-out realities of life. Amen? He's taking, in Christ, He's taking care of the most important deliverance. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from hell. Deliverance from eternal separation from God. He's taking care of that in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you can trust Him with that, you can trust Him with other deliverance as well. This psalm has something to say about salvation. And then fourth and last, this psalm reminds us of another king. This is good, and I don't want to stretch the text too far here, but I think there are some, some insights here. Because I believe God is built into... The pattern of, of revelation, the revealing of God's truth. He's built into the pattern of revelation these redemptive pictures, these redemptive themes. And so David is a king. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord made a covenant with David. He said, one day through your descendants, through, through your physical descendants, I'm going to send a forever king. A king who will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. We know that to be King Jesus. Came through the lineage of David. And he came to this earth to die on the cross to rise from the dead. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over the universe. His rule and reign will never come to an end. So the Davidic throne continues on forever. Have I got that? This is David, the descendant of King Jesus. And... And David 
left Jerusalem. He crossed the brook Kidron, tearfully walked up the Mount of Olives, and fled for his life. Does that remind you of anything? Over in John chapter 18, the Bible says, after Jesus spent time in the upper room with his disciples, he left Jerusalem. Guess what he did? He crossed over the brook Kidron, went up the Mount of Olives to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in Gethsemane, he wept, he sweat, great drops of blood on the ground. He was in such anguish. And so the, David leaving under anguish and, and sadness and brokenness pictures Jesus Christ facing the cross. And then Spurgeon says this. And I love Spurgeon, you know that. But Spurgeon got this from Augustine. And again, I don't want to stretch the verse too far, but here's what Spurgeon says. I just want to point this out. He says, if David, leaving Jerusalem, weeping as he goes, pictures King Jesus leaving Jerusalem and going to the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the cross, he says then, verse 5 pictures what happened to Jesus. Look what he says. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Spurgeon says, again, getting this from Augustine, he says, that speaks of Jesus sleeping the sleep of death when he died on the cross for the sins of humanity, but he did not stay dead. The Lord, his Father, awoke him from the grave, awoke him from death, and he arose forever to reign. Now, I'm not saying this is a specific Messianic psalm. We'll get to some specific Messianic psalms as we journey through the psalms. But I am saying there are some things here that make us think about Jesus, right? And perhaps this is just another picture that God has woven into his word to make us think about the ultimate king, the great king, the king Jesus who died for us. He lay down and slept, a euphemism for death, but then he gloriously rose from the grave. And the, the, the Lord, his father, turned his sorrow into salvation. He became his shield, his glory, the lifter of of his head. This, this passage helps us to think about Jesus a little bit, doesn't it? Reminds us of another king. But I hope that what this psalm does for you tonight is it strengthens your confidence in God when you find yourself facing seemingly insurmountable odds. Hey, look at me real quick. Everybody look at me. Whatever it is, whatever it is, God is bigger. And God can be trusted. You're in his hands. Amen. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.